Good morning and welcome to this week's episode of Ethically Ambiguous, Two Law Students Figuring Things Out. Um, my name is Tiffany Primer and I'll be the host this week and my esteemed colleague Lori Wareham is also uh, will be hosting as well. Hello. Um, this, good morning. <laughs> this week we have a special guest who will join us a little later. Um, many of you will remember her, I guess all of you will remember her from our first year moot class. Uh, Maya Hamu has agreed to join us. Um, we'll discuss, um, this week's theme is, is competence and we'll um, discuss her work on the competence committee at the New Brunswick Law Society. So this week, as I mentioned, our topic was competence and quality of service of uh, lawyers. The readings this week just really were framed around this case, um, Central Trust and Refuse, which discussed the standard for a lawyer in terms of the quality of service and their, their competence level. The case stated that the standard for a, for a lawyer sorry, is that of a reasonably competent solicitor. Of course, um, this, got me, this got me thinking as well, because when we graduate, we will be new baby lawyers. And we, based on this case, we are expected to be of the same level as a reasonably competent solicitor. Um, it's not based on years of experience or um, or anything like that. So it, it, it's interesting that right off the gate, you're sort of held to the standard of what a reasonable lawyer would know, which is really um, no, knowledge of the law and maybe not all points of the law, but then what to look up. So it's, it's certainly something to be mindful when we all graduate that this is the standard um, that, that we're held to. And of course, carrying forward in our profession as well. But it's a little scary to think um, at the very beginning um, after just passing the bar, um, I'm expected to know all of these things, which I guess I should, but um, the reality is, I mean, there's going to be a learning curve and there's in based on the law, there's no real, um, there's no real grace period, which I mean, it, it's, it's fair in one sense. I think if you think about it, because uh, the client, they deserve a certain standard and, and, and that's for sure. But um, it's just a little scary to think about. <laughs> True. I think that's also why um, mentoring is so popular in the profession as well, because you, there's so much of law that's not in the textbook, as I think we're learning a lot in this class. It's a lot of experience is so helpful, but it is true. It is very scary. It's like every single word you say is amplified and every single piece of like work you do is so much more significant when you think about everything they talked about in uh, Central Trust. Yeah, I, I found that this this summer, actually, I worked for a lawyer um, doing mainly uh, real estate and wills um, and estates as well. And I just, I found so many times, especially near the beginning of just asking for help. Now, mind you, I haven't taken real estate yet, so that could be part of the problem. But also, um, there's just so much that's not actually written down because there are there are guidelines and everything from Service New Brunswick to help real estate lawyers. But there's just so much that's actually not recorded anywhere. And it's through years of experience. The, the lawyer that I was working for, she had been in the been a lawyer for I believe 37 years and um it I mean she it, she can just do it off the top of her head and I, it's it feels like I'll never get to that point but um 
you know, we all have to start somewhere, but it's, it's definitely, there's a lot of unwritten rules and, and law school cannot prepare you for all of that is really through experience. The readings this week, um, or sorry, the exercises this week, we were given four scenarios and we could choose, no, sorry, five scenarios and choose two of the five. My team started with uh, the first one, which was um, while writing a report um, after several weeks after the closing of a commercial transaction, you discovered that there was a form that wasn't filled out. And you know that if you go to your client, they will sign whatever you ask them to sign. And the question was really whether or not you tell them the full extent of the story, because if they don't sign, it could affect the liability of the, the sorry, the bank's ability to collect on this secured instrument. And our, our discussion really was around how much you tell them, not necessarily to tell them at, at all, because I mean, I think our, our team thought from the very beginning that they should know something, but it was the question was of how much. And this is something that I think will come up a lot in, in law because you're, you're challenged with all of these different rules in terms of like solicitor client privilege, confidentiality, um, the fact that you, you, know, you, you do have an obligation to be candid with your client, but I mean, you, you can never be fully candid. And sometimes as well, being fully candid might um, overwhelm your client as well because you know, trying to take these like, complex legal uh, terms and theories and, and everything like that didn't have to try to like explain it sometimes might overwhelm your client and your job is to make them understand not necessarily like like the black letter law but just understand I believe the implications of of the law so we just yeah we we went through a lengthy discussion on this how about yourself Lori did you did you guys your team do number one um we didn't but that sounds really interesting um it really has this uh, tone of like mother knows best. It's really um, kind of, and I think a number of the questions did like as a lawyer, you want to be like steamrolling ahead, especially if you know the law and you think you know the outcomes and you think you know what your client wants. It just like that part of your brain's like, oh, it'd be so much easier. But of course, that's you know not what is the best option for the client, and that's what you should be focused on. But yeah, it's really interesting. Um, did you guys talk about? how you would tell the client considering you just were concerned about um, using too much like vernacular um, or like confusing terminology. Yeah. And in the end, we ultimately decided that, well, really the uh, a, a large part of the debate of whether to tell them or not was, would we be facilitating a criminal or illegal activity if we explained everything and then they said they didn't want to sign this paper because signing the paper attached the, um, it was a security instrument and it, it, it and it made um, their property then as like treated as a security instrument, sorry. And um, so not telling them and they would just sign it would take care of the transaction, but telling them they may say, no, I'm not going to sign this. And then there's, that would sort of constitute like fraud with this transaction. So it was really like, do we, do we trust our client to do the right thing or are we putting ourselves at risk? Because by telling them is that then, meaning that we're aiding them sort of in, in contributing in, in creating like a fraud situation. And so that's really like the debate that we had. And in the end, we ultimately decided that we, we trust our client because we have a, we have a responsibility to trust that they'll make the right decision. And also we have that responsibility to tell them um, all aspects. 
So we decided ultimately in the end, yeah, to, to be, give them full disclosure, what signing it will mean and what sign what if they don't sign it, what it means. And then just um, if we were put in a situation where our client decided that they did not want to sign, then we would um, recuse ourselves from the, from the transaction and tell them that I'm sorry, like I can't, I can't be your client any longer in this transaction. And um, cause there'd be a, definitely a, like a conflict of interest at that point and um, go from there. That's awesome. That's really interesting. And um, I was curious, did you guys use the five habits that were spoken about in the textbook? Um, um, can you elaborate? Oh, sorry. So in the textbook, there's actually, and it was really, really helpful for us. We ended up doing number three, which is concerning um, a client who was charged uh, for an offense related to shellfish har harvesting, but the member or the client, sorry, was also a member of a First Nation that had a treaty with the governor of Canada. Mm -hmm. And that approach was basically, they wanted to use the case um, to raise further legal arguments um, in terms of with the First Nation stance and not necessarily their own personal um, defense against the specific events. Um, and so that was obviously oh, okay. challenging to think about in terms of making sure they understood that there is a chance that if they took that argument, they the client themselves might suffer in terms of the events itself and just wondering where their priority stood. Mm -hmm. But we found going through these five steps, um, and I'm going to spell out the last name of this associate professor from the University of Windsor, V-O-Y-V-O-D-I-C. Um, mm -hmm. And they proposed that lawyers develop five habits for culturally competent legal practice. Number one is take note of the differences between the lawyer and client. Number two, yeah. Um, number two, mm -hmm. uh, map out the case, taking into account the different cultural understandings of lawyer and client. Uh, number three, brainstorm additional reasons for puzzling client behavior. Four, identify and solve pitfalls in lawyer-client communications to allow the lawyer to see the client's story through the client's eyes. And number five is to examine previous failed interactions with the client and develop proactive ways pro proactive ways, sorry, to ensure those interactions do not take place in the future. So it sounds like very common sense. But the, the, mm -hmm. the like the way it starts in the beginning is just like taking no, like note of the differences, and the last thing is kind of you know looking back upon issues that you had in communication, and then learning from them and trying to fix them. Um, and we found that that was like such a nice procedural way to look at something that's kind of complex, like when you're looking at you know, and and we were all non good to have with their First Nation. And why they would, you know, perhaps even want to sacrifice their own um, right. position in the case for the states of the First Nation. Um, so we found that that was really useful to make sure that we were fully doing all that we could um, to ensure that our quality of service was exactly what the client wanted, not necessarily what would be the best outcome for the case, which is like when you go through your first and second year of law schools, you're always thinking about like, how can I get the best outcome for the case? Um, so right. this is like a really helpful way to like navigate away from that mentality is that thinking it's client cent centered and client focused. Um, but yeah, I think these, I think these rules and these, I guess, um, uh, like the five steps sort of thing. Yeah. It really forces you to take a step back and focus on really what's the heart of the matter. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's, so fascinating because in a hypothetical you would just all assume that most times the outcome the best outcome for the case is the best outcome 
for the client and the, the you know the best legal strategy but when you're having all these we you know we talked about this so much our first episode as well in terms of talking about how morality is so linked to the law and it seems it once you read a question once you read a hypothetical you're like, oh my god it makes sense that you know the best mm-hmm. interest for the client isn't always going to be the best interest or the best outcome legal wise um right. so reorienting i think that was like a shocker to me i mean it, it totally made sense when we were going through i think we all similarly you know found our groove and, and went through it but having not um kind of faced those problems before because even my work in a law clinic it was generally doing like memos about where the law stands and not so much focusing on um specific case outcomes and stuff like that so i thought that that was really interesting yeah that's that actually that sounds like a really interesting discussion um you think about how the law can be used not just for your client but for like the greater good kind of thing and balancing those two interests because if you think back even to first week about how your duty as a lawyer is also like you're part of the system right and 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 this and the system of law also requires access to justice and access to justice is you know the conversation has really been been starting i think for the last several years which is which is excellent but it means so many different things and in this case it can mean like you said, if you sacrifice one case necessarily for sort of opening up this um, this right or this opening up this avenue for more people to solve an, a, like a bigger, not a, I don't want to call, quantify it necessarily, but another problem for more people. And so, and maybe your client has, has an interest in that as well, but yet they still have this like sort of subset issue that they need to deal with and and but you don't want to sacrifice that to solve a bigger problem so it's 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 just a complex <laughs> there's just there's so many moving pieces and and so i like this idea yeah of, of these these rules that you can sort of like take a step back and and reorientate yourself and then also frame it to your client in that way so then they make yeah the i agree and i think um the more and more we're we're doing these hypotheticals the more i realize that you know and I, this is mentioned in the first week of law school but it's so true um that one of the best skills you can really practice as a lawyer is is kind of developing your people skills is developing your ability to talk with people and um to kind of have the ability to distance yourself sometimes from the emotional but also being empathetic i mean there's always a balance to be struck but having the ability to have these conversations and, and make sure that you're very clear is a genuine skill um, and I think that's important. But I also just to to really make this full circle to note on what you said in the beginning is that, you know, you're always supposed to be held to the standard of a competent lawyer. One of the first things we looked at this case was, wow, okay, so if you're being approached by a client with a criminal matter, you're probably very expert or you, you become known for um, becoming or sorry, for being a defense lawyer. But this mm-hmm. um, right. and I, I think, you, you know, everyone has their skill set and maybe this you're a lawyer who has multiple skill sets but especially um indigenous issues and issues in terms of treaties are very nuanced and often require a lawyer dedicated in that field so our first question was wow are we your best lawyer here like would it be in your best interest for me to take this case still because it seems like you're trying to develop a more nuanced argument than what i would feel comfortable taking on and so maybe approaching them being like hey 
I mean, if you're comfortable being letting them know you're comfortable or if you're not, let them know that. Being like, this is my expertise. You know, I think the X person would, might want to work or, or just developing some sort of conversation around that as well. Um, but it's it's true. There's people going to approach you and you have to make those calls too. Being like, am I capable of taking on this case, you know? We we discussed that in the last one um, had to do with like a tax issue. And, and we also had that same concern that, I mean, the law states a reasonably competent lawyer, not necessarily like a, a specialist in, in one particular area. And so we, we had this like, well, are we, are, again, we should like, are we the best person able to provide this information? And, and a lot of times, I believe um, the professor said this week, this idea of you not necessarily need to know all the law, but know where to look. And even sometimes that can be tricky because if you don't know um, all aspects of the law, then it can be quite com complicated to know where exactly to look for it. I mean, I'm, obviously, like if you're thinking of a tax situation, you know to look for the Income Tax Act. But with your your example, um, First Nations and treaties, that that comes from many different areas of the law that you cannot um, you really need to have a really nuanced understanding to be able to put forth a, a comprehensive answer. For sure. Um, and I think I always get scared because I feel like as, you know, a future, uh, new lawyer, new to the bar, I would feel like very not confident in anything. Uh, but it's like, it's <laughs> truly knowing, you know, your expertise and like where you can draw expertise from and, and kind of constantly having that question for yourself as well. Um, yeah, it's challenging, but I, I think... I think we kind of came along the same similar issues um, and learning how to have a client centered approach to everything, because that's it. You could look at the same question in five different ways, but it's making sure that you're thinking about the client's needs and the client's wants and knowing how to communicate with them to get that information is really the skill set right. that we kind of need to develop consistently, I guess. Yeah. That we need, we need more. Yeah. Time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, we're going to invite um, Maya Hamu to join us now on this podcast, and she will give us a rundown of the competence committee at the New Brunswick Law Society. Good morning, Maya. Hello. Hi, can you hear us? Hello Morning. there, now I can hear you. <laughs> Sorry, oh, but hi, thank you for joining us. Lori and I um, just um, did a little intro, but um, this week um, our theme of the podcast is competence. So um, you're part of the competence committee at the New Brunswick Law Society, and we're really hoping that you can um, tell us about that and and maybe some insight um, and tips and tricks for new lawyers. <laughs> certainly, certainly. So um, I guess, we'll, can you hear me well? Okay, yes. perfect. Yes. It's my first time using this platform, so I just want to make sure <laughs> I've got the technology down. Um, so I guess yeah. we'll start off by, by first giving you some content, context as to what the competence committee um, does. So what we are is we are a number of members of the law society who practice in different um, areas of law and who are at different years of call. And I think that's part of the importance of the committee because we're evaluating um, lawyers who come before the committee that are at different levels in their career 
and also that come from different practice areas. So that's really the beauty of the committee is that it's so diverse and it's what makes it um, appropriate. Now, that's yeah, excellent. and the way it works with the committee is that the um, matters come before us through the registrar of complaints. And so the registrar of complaints is kind of the, the person at law society who receives all of the complaints from the public. And then they decide whether to stream those. I, they have a lot of options under the Law Society Act. They can dismiss the complaints, they can investigate them further, and then they can refer them to three of the committees. Um, there's the complaints committee, there's the competence committee, and there's the discipline committee. Now, the matters that come before us have often already been in front of one of those other committees. So it's often already gone in front of the discipline committee, or the complaints committee. And then it's often a situation where somebody feels, well, this isn't so much um, a disciplinary action, it's probably a, a competence issue that needs to be addressed. So that's how they come before us. So it's a, a kind of a unique process because they rarely come straight from the complaint um, to our committee. So they, okay. they've already usually been kind of, um, the background's been investigated or you know the lawyer's files have been reviewed by the time we get, if you want, a package, uh, so a doc, a set of documents to review, um, and then we have to decide where we go. So it's it's super interesting work, but it's also very important work uh, because after all, what you have to keep in mind is that the Law Society's goal is to protect the public. So mm -hmm. when you protect the public, you have to make sure that, so we all feel like we're all lawyers, we all need to protect each other. But at the heart of it, um, if you, you don't protect the public, there's no value in the law society. Um, and so that's the, the underpinning of everything we do is, is somebody well served by this lawyer that we have before us? Did this lawyer do everything, you know, a diligent lawyer in the same situation would have done? Right. Yeah, Lori and I actually started talking because the the one of the cases that we looked at this week were central trust and refuse and how the the standard for a lawyer is that of a reasonably competent lawyer. And so we we did looked at it from our, our lens of being new lawyers and sort of being scared that you're immediately held to this standard, but yet understanding why the standard is in place. So it's interesting and it's I guess it's encouraging to know that you have people on your committee from all different areas and also different like years of experience on the bar. So is there, I guess a question is, do you look at new lawyers differently or are they really held to the same standard as, as other um, lawyers? I wouldn't say that we look at them differently. There's a bit more um, indulgence, but the contrary is, is also true. When we look at very senior lawyers who are doing things mm -hmm. that they should know better by then, um, they're, they're put to a higher standard because you're expected to know this if you've been in the business for 20 years and doing this type of work for 20 years. But you have to keep what you have to keep in mind for the new lawyers is that the standard is still the same. You still have to serve the public and not be negligent and and have that level of reasonable competence. Um, but um, you know, I'm cautious because I know we had a couple of cases in front of us where we had you know sole practitioners, for example, who got in way over their heads doing things they didn't know how to do, and that's really the key there is um, to never take something on that you you don't have an idea what you're doing or that you don't have the support in place. And that's, that's a huge component of some of the stuff we have in front of us. 
Um, we rarely see files from big law firms. And that's not, and don't take that the wrong way. It's not to mean that the big law mm -hmm. firms don't screw up. I think what it shows is that they have more support internally. So if a lawyer is stuck and doesn't know what to do, they have those resources, you know, down, well, not anymore down the, the hall, but, um, you know, that's in place for them. And so that's what we find a lot of the mistakes that are made are for a lack of support in place or, you know, or a lack of um, training when they were starting to learn that area of law, for example. Interesting. Interesting. Is there any, um, aside from a law firm that you know of, like working in a law firm, are there any um, support groups for perhaps new lawyers that, you know, they can talk amongst themselves? But I mean, I guess there's always this issue of confidentiality. So I don't know. Yeah, how that that's right. But oftentimes the issues we see aren't confidentiality. So they're not those issues that you see in case law where, you know, the lawyer was uh, given the gun, didn't know what to do with the gun. Those issues are mm -hmm. few and far between. The issues we see uh, in front of the competence committee are more often, so take it in the context of a real estate transaction. As a real estate lawyer, there are certain steps you are required to do to be able to um, finalize the transaction. One of which is ensuring um, mm -hmm. that the title is free and clear of encumbrances. So. If a lawyer who practices in real estate doesn't take the steps to ensure that the, the title is free of um, encumbrances, well, then they're not doing the basic job that they're required to do in a real estate transaction. So I, I think the public has mm -hmm. this view that a real estate transaction is simply you go into the lawyer's office, you sign the paperwork, and there you go, it's done. But the lawyers know that there's much more behind the scenes that happens. And the reasonably competent lawyer needs, know, needs to know what those steps are. And so needs to be able to walk through um, all the, the, you know, the, the requirements to ensure that the, the title is free and clear, for example. And yeah, I, I actually worked with a lawyer this summer doing real estate transactions. And, uh, and Lori and I talked with this a little earlier about how there's so much that is not actually written down. They're not in the guidelines or anything. And the thankfully, the lawyer I was working with, she has 37 years of experience. And so she was able to, to help me. But I was constantly amazed at how there were these little things that I like that can trip you up. And I had no idea about it and no and not even like an, not even awareness in some sense that this could be a potential issue because like I did a couple of searches where if it's not on land titles you have to go back exactly 40 that's, years. and that's the situation I'm talking to you about in terms of ensuring that you 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 mm -hmm. check the background but yeah but you see yeah, you, what you yeah. just gave it as an example is that network that we're talking about so this senior lawyer who's mm -hmm. kind of taking you under her wing and teaching you how she does it. And you learn through that process. And so you're going to acquire the skills that a reasonable, competent lawyer has to have and the knowledge in terms of what you need to do. And you're going to have those instincts as a reasonably competent lawyer to say, mm, I think I have to check this or I need to I think I need to ask somebody about this. And it's following those instincts mm -hmm. and then asking another lawyer, have you ever had a situation where it was registered in this jurisdiction, but not this one? And what do you do with it? And, and you're not breaching confidentiality by by just talking about the the steps without talking about the actual file or client uh, information, right? Yeah. Right. Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, it's encouraging. But I think what people need to realize is that going out on your own when you don't know what you're doing and have never done it 
is dangerous to the public and to yourself as a lawyer. And so that's the takeaway. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I remember the reason I wanted to be on the confidence committee when I first came to New Brunswick, I moved here from Ontario after practicing over there for a few years. And I practiced mostly in the large firm environment and um, also uh, doing litigation work. So it's very kind of specialized area of litigation. Um, but when I came to New Brunswick, I thought, okay, well, I'm a lawyer. I've been at, at this for five years. I can start my own firm. And when I started looking at what was involved, um, I got cold feet, but cold feet because I was concerned that I would not be competent on my own without a network in New Brunswick to go, you know, to start my own firm. So that's some, and that's why I wanted to become part of the competence committee because I held myself back because it's so important that our lawyers serve the public and know what they're doing and, and don't just jump into the practice of law like they're starting a business down the street. Um, you know, it's to protect the, the public really, that, that, that's, that's why it's important. Well, that's um, certainly a good point. We, I mean, as a new lawyer, I know like I'm, I'm a little bit scared for sure of this idea of like going out and, and trying to um, like hang that shingle, if you will, and say, okay, I'm open for business when, when, yeah, there's so much to it that it's, it's not like a, a another business that there's this real aspect of um, this duty to the public and to protect them sort of from yourself if you don't have those skills but that's good. Um, so, that fear is good, I mean, and it's going to drive you to double-check your work, to ask questions. What we worry about in the committee is when uh, lawyers are not afraid or when you, you tell them, because oftentimes when we go through this process, we will we'll interview the lawyers in question, and we'll say, okay, so you did this transaction this way, and so can you explain to us why you did this and then why you didn't do this? And so you have... On one hand, the lawyers who say, I know, I know I should have checked. I see it in retrospect now. I talked to a lawyer about it and I could see what the, the issues are and why I shouldn't have done it. And, and it's in my checklist now and I'll check it. But then you have the other lawyers who, who don't acknowledge the error or understand the importance of the error. And that, that's where we get into scary territory um, where um, as the competence committee, we want to make sure those lawyers become competent in the field before they're allowed to practice in the area. Um, and so the fear is good. Embrace the fear. It will drive you to, to make uh, verification, make inquiries. Um, and, um, and I wouldn't be afraid of it so much as um, saying that that's your, you know, that's your red flag that goes up when you're doing the work. Um. I have a right. question, actually, because now that I'm thinking about this and the checklist, uh, I know in law school, there's a real reliance on a lot of the services provided by um, like Quick Law and Westlaw and all that stuff. And there's often like these like checklists of how to do things. Do you worry that people are becoming overly reliant on these like external helpful things? Things are meant to guide you, but they're using them as like ultimate checklists. Like as long as I do this, I'm confident. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because I think these checklists have come up in the last, well, at least for me, for my practice, I've seen them prop up in the last like five years um, where before it was kind of people made their own checklists and kind of came up with their own, um, you know, things to verify. Um, listen, I think it's, it's useful because I think there are some things that lawyers wouldn't necessarily have thought about if they didn't see it in the checklist. So maybe right. it's adding, uh, you know, an added comfort. But ultimately, if you don't understand what's in that checklist and what it involves, it's of no value. 
So, you know, you could give a lawyer 20 checklists, but it doesn't mean they understand what they're doing in terms of uh, fulfilling that requirement. So, you know, like, for example, think about something like a limitation period, which that that is a huge um, it's a huge thing for, for a litigator. So a litigator who doesn't know where to find limitation periods with respect to the particular case they're doing, a, you know, a checklist that talks about check the limitation period isn't going to be of very much use. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's the Limitation of Actions Act, but then there's also all these statutory, um, you know, periods that are, are provided for judicial reviews, for example, or for, for any other type of matters that are in a straight up civil litigation action. So the checklists are useful. Um, I think we rely on them, but, but I think at the end of the day, that lawyer still has to have that underpinning of confident, uh, competence to be able to navigate through the checklist. So yeah, it's not enough to just um, know that these things exist. You need to understand like the nuances, like that's in relation right. to that's that. right, that's right, and 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 it's the the yeah. understanding of what what's at stake and what possible problem will occur if you don't do X, Y, and Z. And so you know the competence committee in in its ears has done a host of things. Like some of the things we've done is well, you're authorized, for example, to do real estate transactions but your work has to be verified by another lawyer. So in that case, you'll, you'll have, um, you know, the lawyer's still exercising in their field and they're still doing everything themselves, but you have that added security check of, of another lawyer's eyes on the file who can flag any issues that may, may arise. Um, but then you have the other end of the spectrum yeah. where in some cases we've sent people back um, to complete like classes in university like saying, you know, you didn't understand anything about property law. So we're going to send you back to do property law and the bar admission course, you know, section on on property law. Um, and so that's an extreme example. Yeah. But so you see that the, the range is very broad in terms of what the competence committee can do. Um, if you place um, that restriction on a lawyer that their work needs to be reviewed by another lawyer, um, do you have like, does a lawyer have to let their clients know that all their work is being Yeah, reviewed? and often, oops, sorry, that <laughs> came up on my computer. Um, so they have to uh, ensure that there's um, measures in place. Oftentimes when that happens, the two firms will be working collaboratively. So, the you know, whoever, whichever client will come before that lawyer will know that they're working in collaboration with this other person who will also be part of that relationship. So it... It's, it's a good question because you'll see it arise because we're dealing with a lot of sometimes sole practitioners situations. Um, that situation does arise, but there are measures put in place to ensure that confidentiality is maintained for the client, but through like an added bubble, if you will. So that this other lawyer is part of that yeah. confidentiality bubble um, for the client. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Uh, do you, does your committee produce um, a report perhaps that um, compiles like say the last like year, what some of the main themes were that came before you. So then you know, perhaps like to inform law societies or even um, the bar admissions course, what people are struggling with. No, actually with. that's really interesting. I don't think it's something the committee does. Mind you, the registrar might um, might do that through liaison with other bar um, bars across the country. Um, one of the things I can tell you that, that we've seen a lot of, though, is um, mental health. 
So mental health and um, people not uh, taking care of themselves and having, you know, either addiction issues, often that will creep up into uh, the work of the competence committee. So people, people who are overwhelmed end up cutting corners and, and then putting at risk uh, the public. Um, it's happened uh, in many of the cases we've seen. So that's definitely one of those themes that we're seeing um, much more of these days. And I don't know that it's necessarily a new problem. I think we're just more open to hearing it now as before, um, you know, if somebody right. uh, was overwhelmed and anxious, we were like, well, you can't handle it. Well, no, that's not what it is anymore, right? So um, it, there's a change in, in terms of the openness that we have now, but the openness doesn't change the fact that you still have to be competent. So it's okay for you to be overwhelmed right. and, and be in over your head, but now let's put measures in place so that you're not allowed to practice more than you can handle for the time being until you get better. And so that's kind of the approach the committee has taken, I think, in the last few years, based on some of those situations we've seen. Interesting. And the, I believe the Law Society, they offer like a, um, an assistance program. Yeah, I'm that, not sure that, that it's for through lawyers? the Law Society. I think it's through the Canadian Bar Association. So for young lawyers, okay. this is I, it was hard for me to understand this because I always thought the Law Society was there for me as a lawyer. No, they're not really there for me as a lawyer. They're there as a licensing body for me as a lawyer, but they're there to protect the public. That's their utmost priority. Whereas the CBA is, is the association mm -hmm. that's there for the lawyers, that's advocating on behalf of the lawyers. And so the CBA is the one who runs this um, the, the program, the LAP, which is the Lawyers Assistance Program. And there's tremendous resources okay. in place there. Um, even like think about things like uh, financial. So if a lawyer is having financial issues, can't pay his mortgage anymore, uh, and you know feeling overwhelmed, not making enough money through the practice, uh, they have like budgeting um, assistance that they can offer through the lawyers assistance program. So the the range of of services that are available is tremendous, and I think a lot of lawyers don't recognize that they're there and available for them. Yeah, I don't think I understood that distinction between the Law Society and the Canadian Bar Association because I, I, I think I did have that impression that the Law Society was for lawyers in that sense as a, like a regulatory body, but also like as a support system. But so that's interesting to know that where to look for support would primarily be the Canadian Yeah, that's Bar what I recommend. I mean, listen, the Law Society is great. The people there are great and they'll, they'll answer any question you have. But, you know, at the, at the outset, at the heart mm -hmm. of it, um, what it is, is they are a regulatory body. And so, um, you know, they they do, they care about their lawyers, but ultimately they want to, they care about their lawyers providing competent services uh, to the public. Um, one of the things that I, I know uh, was discussed in the last few years is a stream, a different stream for, um, what do you call it? for a discipline stream where mental health issues were in play. So that's more in the discipline context, so it's not necessarily in the competence umbrella, but um, I know that, that that's moving forward as well. So there's a lot of new things that are coming out of the law society as we catch up with the times. Speaking of new things, um, with this pandemic, I mean, we've all had to sort of like shift um, our mindset and how we do things, and I know um, that there's been some changes even within the law society. So for example, you can now use like Zoom and MS Teams to do, um, to meet with your client instead of having to actually have a physical meeting. 
is there any, I guess, change in terms of this um, increased pressure for lawyers to become competent with technology? To yeah, I'm pretty clients? sure it's one of the new competencies now. Um, we we have discussed it in the past. Okay, so th this is twofold, I guess. One, the first aspect is that it's it's a great that the law law society is now coming up to speed on technology. Like the competence committee is is a huge example of that because every member of the committee is is from a different part of the province. So whenever we meet, we, we often try to meet when we're all available, and then it's a full day that you have to set mm -hmm. aside because there's people traveling from up north and from you know the Moncton area. And so, um, so the fact that we can now use technology and just block off a two and a half hour block for our meetings uh, is is I like it's eye opening. I can't believe we didn't do it before. Um, I think we were stuck in the the era of we need to meet in pub person or whatever. Um, so that's that's one part of it. Uh, but the other part that you mentioned in terms of technological competency um, is. It's something that's being worked on with the new students who a lot of them by default, because they're growing up in this generation, have had to, to be mm -hmm. competent with the use of technology. Uh, but there's also now like the new component of, you know, those older old school lawyers have to be able to do things uh, through the use of technology. And, and the law society has been pretty good about holding their hand through the process. So, for example, the MCPD requirements, so that's the mandatory continuing professional development, um, is, it's a requirement that we do 12 mm -hmm. hours a year, and you have to report those hours to the Law Society. Well, gone are the days of, of sending in a paper, you know, copy of the hours you, you have to submit. You do it all online through the online portal. And I remember the first few years that that started, the person who was working at the Law Society in that department wanted to pull her hair out because a lot of those older lawyers or more old school, not as technology savvy lawyers were calling and didn't understand that the password was the same password all the time and, and things of that nature. Um, so I, I understand that's difficult for a lot of the, um, the older generations, but they are catching up and surprisingly, um, it, that doesn't seem to be the biggest problem we're having uh, in terms of them being able to do it. It's basically they integrate the tools if they can in their practice. And if they don't know how to, they, mm -hmm. they don't. And, and that's also acceptable. Um, if, you know, if they don't want to meet with clients through Zoom, they don't have to. It's to their benefit if they want to. But so it's, it's, it's something that's front and center these days. That's for sure. Right, right. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I, I um, think uh, we probably should wrap things up soon, but I'm just wondering if you can leave us with a few final tips and tricks for uh, new lawyers in like they're embarking on their practice and, and how to ensure that they're keeping um, mindful of this level of competence that's required of them and, and how to um, sh ensure that they're you know, protecting themselves. That's, right. That's and a, the public. great question. So I, what I can tell you is a, a few of the things that I've noticed. So um, if you're practicing on your own, make sure you have a network of senior lawyers who practice in that area that you can call on if you have questions about processes or, you know, things that you're not sure about. So that's that's the number one is having a network. Um, the other thing is um, the mandatory continuing legal education component of it. Uh, it helps to focus on the areas of law that you're not as knowledgeable on 
and to go get that continuous learning education. It's part of the requirements under the Law Society. So going out and getting those um, extra sessions uh, to brush up on your, your knowledge, uh, that's, that, that's a huge component. Now, also, the obligation is on the lawyer to, um, to, to become competent themselves once they practice in an area. So it's that, you know, that openness to picking up a book and reading about the area of law you practice in to see if there's something that you don't know and to be confident but not cocky because the confidence is what's going to make you mm -hmm. um, start doing the work. But the cockiness is what's going to make you make mistakes because you're going to think you're infallible. So um, just to have you know a sense of a little grain of humility there and realize that you don't know everything when you're starting. You will make mistakes, but it's it's knowing uh, when to catch them before they they are fatal to you or your client, right? So that, those would be my tips for somebody starting uh, starting out. Excellent. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time um, to discuss this. I mean, I'm sure, like I said, a lot of um, students in this probably feel the exact same way in, in, in that sense that they're a little scared. But it's it's nice to know that um, to be given this understanding that, you know, like everyone sort of started out feeling that way and that if you just um, discuss it and, and have this network that you really like in the end, you'll, you'll probably be OK if you recognize that, you know, you're not. Um, like you said, you're, you don't know everything, but um, to have that support. Exactly. System, well, so thank you for having awesome. me. It was a pleasure chatting with you too. And uh, it's nice to see you again or hear you. Again. <laughs> <laughs> you do.